This podcast is brought to you by the Copywriter Think Tank, our mastermind group for writers who are serious about taking their businesses to the next level. In the Think Tank, you'll learn from guest experts who share their business and copywriting expertise. You'll have the opportunity to sit in the hot seat while other members of the group brainstorm solutions to the challenges you're facing. And you'll have exclusive access to a small, focused group of professional copywriters who are all working together to get better at what we do. It's not cheap, but it's worth the investment. If you're interested in learning more, visit www.copywriterthinktank.com. What if you could hang out with seriously talented copywriters and other experts, ask them about their successes and failures, their work processes, and their habits, then steal an idea or two to inspire your own work? That's what Kira and I do every week at the Copywriter Club podcast. You're invited to join the club for episode 83 as we talk with copywriter and marketer Bond Halbert about the most important lessons he learned from his father, the man many call the greatest copywriter who ever lived, the story behind the Boron letters, the formulas, tactics, and strategies he uses to create effective copy, and what he's doing to carry on Gary's legacy. Hey, Bond. Welcome, Bond. Hi. Thank you for having me here. <laughs> yeah, we're thrilled to have you. When we made a list of all of the guests that we wanted to interview eventually on the podcast, your name was one of the first ones that we added. And so it's taken us a little while to get to you, but we are glad that you're finally here. Oh, um, I didn't know that. I would have come sooner. <laughs> <laughs> this is perfect. Perfect timing. Episode 83 is a good episode. So, Bond, let's start with your story, especially for people who are less familiar with you. You know, how, how did you get into this wonderful world of copywriting and marketing? I'm going to try and make this really short because I know I've given this to people who've heard me on other podcasts and I like to give people as much like new stuff as I can and tactical advice. Basically, my dad quit his last job, got fired from his last job the day before I was born. And he started getting into the world of copywriting and direct marketing on basically the day I was born. So I grew up in the business, but one day what happened was I was talking to him. We were walking down the street and my dad had this kind of rocky up and down relationship with money. And so a lot of people don't know it, but you know, his ability to make money is only really eclipsed by his ability to blow it. And he did, he did this on purpose. It took me many years to figure out that he was addicted to the, like needing to have a big win and then making a big win. <laughs> And so one time he was needing a big win and I turned to him and I said, you know, I'm really lucky. He said, why? And I said, my oldest brother got to grow up with, you know, all the toys and pleasures of being a rich kid. I get to see how you make it. And he thought that was really, really smart thing for a 10 year old to say. So he singled me out and started, you know, because after he started, you know, making money in copywriting. He made big wins by breaking the rules and doing things the way he wanted. And he decided he was going to parent that way too. So he decided that what he was going to do is teach me from an early age. He wasn't going to put me through the standard, go to high school, go to college, blah, 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 blah. He started mentoring me right away. And he started taking me, you know, I was flying all over the country and internationally a little bit on business trips so that I could learn what he was doing. And he would explain what he was going to do. I would be in the meetings and hanging out with him. And then he would explain what happened in the meeting, you know, afterwards. We called it, it was like from the military, called it an after action report. So I started getting this incredibly early education. Even before that, I was stuffing, stamping, and sealing envelopes for test mailings as long as I can remember. 
I mean, as a little kid. <laughs> yeah. So I've been, I've just been in direct response for ages. And that, that's, that's how I got into it. I know most people have a, you know, I was sleeping in my car story that everybody really appreciates. <laughs> I, I'm just, you know, I was born into it. I will admit it, but I did earn everything that I know. You know, and a lot of times what I would do is I'd do a podcast or an interview and people like, you know, do you mind talking about my dad? And I was like, sure, I love my dad. I'll talk about him all day long. And if that's all you want to talk about, I will. But a little while into it, they'd realize, you know, I did a lot of stuff on my own. And then eventually my podcast, <laughs> you know, they started, they stopped asking about my dad completely. <laughs> and then recently we've been doing a lot more stuff to bring my dad's, you know, highlight stuff. So like we're going to be having a memorial um, seminar for his 80th birthday in June coming up. And we do a lot of things to make sure that he's in the, in not only in the spotlight still, which we don't really have to do. Because as Paris Lompropolis once said, in the world of copy, all roads lead to Gary Halbert. But, you know, to make sure that everybody knows that we don't, we, everything, you know, my dad used to say this to me and I give him credit and I say, it's true. He says, you know, every single thing that you do well, I get credit for because I taught you how to think. Everything you don't do well, well, that's your mom or somebody else. <laughs> I, like that. I like that. Yeah. So, so Bond, the first time I think that I came across your name was reading the Boron letters, which were letters that your dad wrote to you when he was spending some time in jail. I'm curious, you know, I think you were still really young when that happened, right? Like when you got those letters, was this stuff that resonated with you immediately or did you sort of set them aside for a while, you know, until you were maybe mature enough to actually try out the things that Gary was telling you to do? Tell us the story behind that and, you know, how that all came about. Well, I was 15. I turned 16 while he was in there. And so he was sending me the letters, but he was kind of more or less letting, getting his ideas down on paper and his thoughts and his lessons. You know, there were people who were friends of his that he would teach some stuff, but he didn't really stop and like start mentoring until me. And I'm, and I'm not saying I'm his best mentee or anything like that. But what I am saying is since I was the first, I saw these, all these lessons that he gave in training all the copywriters that he's famous for training. I was not only the first one, but I saw the lessons evolve over time and stuff like this. So this was the very beginning of that. And in fact, the Boron letters is kind of like the outline for what turned out to be his newsletter. And then he took several of his key issues in his newsletter and put them together for a book to promote his newsletter. The book was How to Make Maximum Money in Minimum Time, which will be available again, create space, you know, stop letting us use them unless they get a 70% commission. And we're going to have that back up and ready to offer in about a week. But in any case, that book promoted his newsletter. So it's kind of started this whole thing. It was the Boron letters. And for me, a lot of the lessons I was already getting for a long time. So he was kind of rehashing stuff, but he was going into more detail. And so it wasn't as revolutionary to me when I received them. But what happened later was I started to get a greater and greater appreciation. You know, when you're older and you have kids, you start to realize and understand things about your parents that you get now because you're a parent, you're in their shoes. Yeah. So, so when I had my son, I was like, oh man, I now get why my dad had this extra amount of patience for me. He had for nobody else in the world. I mean, nobody. <laughs> and I always later reveled in like, you know, man, why did he put up with me? I mean, he, he would have, you know, punched somebody else <laughs> for doing that. And then I had my son. I'm like, oh, wow, I get it. And what happened was later on with the Neuron Letters, I was like, oh, my God, you know, I get how special this is. And then the best part about the Born Letters, which is also a good piece of advice, is 
reread it because I noticed that the quick to the point books like scientific advertising in the Boron letters, you can pick them up and reread them once a year. You know, there's a hundred different nuggets in there. And there's several nuggets like in every paragraph. And what happens is you turn around and go, yeah, that's right. I forgot. I need to start personalizing my campaigns. I haven't been doing that a lot. Or I need to start targeting in this way or that way. And you go, they're the books. Those short, powerful, impactful books are the ones that you get more out of more often you read them. And they're great reminders that should be read once a year. So I do it. Several of us do it, you know, and it became a cult classic. It was really funny because my dad first said, do you mind if I publish them, the raw ones? I said, no, go ahead. No, as in, no, I don't mind. And, you know, he did that and they, everybody just really loved the raw honesty of it. And they love the life lessons. And by the way, that none of it's contrived. That is the relationship my father and I had. His complete and total open honesty, you know, and this real closeness all the time. I mean, that was the way he and I were the whole ride. And so, and, you know, I'm very fortunate for that. (laughs) You know, one of the things I consider myself very fortunate for is having a great relationship with both my parents. Now, for someone listening who's like, okay, I want to, I want to read the Boron letters. Where can they find the Boron letters today? I'll tell you, you can read just the regular version online at the GaryHalbertLetter.com, but I put out a version on Amazon where you can go and you can get the print version or an ebook version, but I've added commentary that explains what's going on behind the scenes at that time. So it also helps update things and say, this is a more modern way that you're doing this. So for example, you know, my dad, one of his big breakthroughs was figuring out how to get mail opened in Redmore for direct mail. And then I used the principles, just the principles and the concepts behind it. And I started experimenting and started getting astronomically high open rates for emails. And that's according to AWeber and GetResponse. You know, their reps said, man, you get really high open rates. And I started doing that. And and I'm not saying that that's all outlined in the book. What happens is since the book was written so long ago, sometimes people just don't see exactly how this applies today. So the commentaries in there will help do that, but they'll also help give you some behind the scenes look at what was going on, you know, from my perspective and my point of view, because while he was writing these letters, I was also driving out there to deliver his work. I was his messenger in liaison between his clients and him while he was there. You know, the added commentaries in those. And so you can get those on Amazon. And it's, I think it's like $10 for an ebook and then 20 or something for the print version. It's been a long time since I've been there. <laughs> okay. And, and you mentioned while he was there and you're speaking about prison. Is, that's right. Yep. So for someone who's not as familiar with your father, can you share why was he in prison? And also what was that like for you as a 15 year old to have a father in prison? You know, it wasn't something that I was like, you know, totally ashamed or shocked of or anything like that. And the the one thing that happened was my dad actually did get railroaded for something he did not do. I know a lot of people say that, but I can actually prove it. My dad had a long history of running direct mail campaigns and stuff like that. In 1976, he started running a commemorative plate campaign where they were making plates to commemorate the 200th anniversary of the country. And so he needed some money. So he went to a list broker and the list broker said, I got a really hot list that will buy these commemorative plates. And he said, okay, it's a big list. And he said, okay, give me a thousand names to test. My dad didn't know any better at the time. So the guy gives him a thousand names, but he doesn't just give him a thousand names. He takes that list and compares it with other commemorative lists. And he pulls out the thousand names that are on every single one of these lists. So the test does really well. My dad orders up 
all of the names and starts to mail them to make money and get this in, you know, while the anniversary is hot. Well, of course, the list doesn't perform the way that the test does because not everybody is such a hot buyer. And as a result, they couldn't keep up and make all the orders and the refunds. Somebody complained to the postal inspectors. They come by and they see that my dad is living in this really expensive house, which he'd rented and stuff like that. But he was at the moment he needed money, right? <laughs> Remember, I told you this is a rocky relationship right. yeah. with money. So my dad makes the foolish mistake of inviting them in and saying, here, come on, look at my books. I'm telling you, this is an honest mistake and this is how it happened. And they just used all that as evidence to prove that. You know, like he intended to run this ad and he never intended on fulfilling on the orders, even though he had a long history of fulfilling on orders and building companies that did, right? <laughs> so in any other circumstance, it would have been a company that just filed bankruptcy, right? But anyway, so they, they, there's a long, long story about how his trials went because he had, he won an appeal that he said he shouldn't have won, but he got convicted of something he shouldn't have been convicted for. But when he went in there, you know, he was very nervous before going in. That was the scariest part for both of us is right before he went in and not knowing what it was going to be like. Once he was in there, it turned out to be one of the best experiences of his life. He got into shape. He immediately said, you know what? You know, I didn't do this, but I've done other things and I'm considering this cleaning my karmic slate and I'm done my time. And after this, I'm going to come out and I'm going to take the world by the horns. And he did. And he met some very savvy, influential people in there because he's not in state prison. He's in a federal prison camp. He's in there. When, you know, I go visit in the, in the, the visiting yard. There was a limousine that was parked there because after a certain amount of time, you would get like a certain amount of doing the, your sentence. You had some leave time where they would let you out for a weekend. And there was a guy there who kept the limousine parked there so that he could, you know, hop into the limousine and immediately start having a good time as soon as they released him <laughs> for the weekend. Wow. You know, so he's not in the, you know, he is in there with some murderers and drug dealers and all these people who are working their way from maximum level to being, you know, out and on parole and probation and everything. But it really would, you know, he was actually in there with some savvy folks. Anyway, so once he got, once he was in there getting in shape and doing his thing and uh, everything else, it turned out to be something that hardened him, made him a better, stronger person. And, you know, we both learned a lot from that. I learned lessons throughout that whole thing that have benefited me later in life. And I'm talking about legal lessons and everything about it. So it wasn't a traumatic thing for me, you know, I will admit, but that's the short version of how he got in there and what happened. Yeah, and he has, I think, one of the issues of the Gary Halbert letter, he actually talks about that whole process of what happened, which is really interesting to read. But I'm really curious, Bond, about the copywriting and marketing lessons that you learned from your dad. I know there are probably hundreds of them, but if you had to pick you know, a top three or four things that he taught you about copywriting, what would they be? The number one mistake everybody seems to make, in my opinion, and I think in my dad's, is you know they should really take writing out of it. Because the truth is, the writing isn't the key part. It's not the hard part. It's not the talent. You want to be brief, concise. You want people to get your message. And most of all, you want to be compelling. You don't want to be poetic. You know, it's about persuasion. It's about communications. You know, one of the things that people now really get a lot, thanks to my dad, is they shoot for a fifth grade reading level. I shoot for third grade, to tell you the truth, because nobody's going to complain that you're too clear. You know, so somebody will say, well, you must understand. And I'll say, well, you've got to get. <laughs> And the point that I'm making is 
They worry about how they're going to start that copy and they're worried about how they're going to make this transition and everything. And that's not the part to worry about. And I'm going to give you lots of tips in this little explanation of what I'm trying to say here. Excellent. What I do is, and everybody does it differently. Some people just research till they get it. And then they start writing their first draft. Other people, they have different formulas. I use one third, one third, one third. That's just me. I'm not saying it's right for everybody, but one third of the process for me is doing research. And so if you have three hours to write an email, first hour is going to be research. And that's where all the power in your marketing comes from, because knowing and understanding your customers is more important than anything else. And the example I always use is the Domino's pizza campaign, because Everybody was running on the idea that I've got Mama Mia's grandma's from Italy's famous sauce recipe for my pizza, or we use the freshest ingredients. And everybody heard that a million times. What nobody paid attention to is all the customers were sick and tired of not knowing when that pizza was going to be delivered. So Domino's said, we're going to do 30 minutes or less. Now they could have said half an hour or it's on us, 30 minutes or it's free. They could have said 30 minutes or less or you don't pay. They could have put that offer in any way they wanted. It was still would have crushed it. Right. Because they knew what the customers wanted. They did some research and and it doesn't have to be a ton of research, but that's what really made that offer fantastic. So the power in your marketing is all in knowing your customers. And then the talent really comes from after doing that research or being part of the market and going through the processes yourself. The talent is in developing a unique, a big idea, which is either a unique hook, offer or solution. And the solution could be a unique solution for the customers themselves, like the 30 minutes or it's free, or it could be a unique marketing solution, like how to get your advertising for half of what everybody else is paying, right? And that gives you the advantage. But that's where the talent kind of comes in. And then the middle third is about walking around, gelling with all that in your head, getting that big idea, and then pumping out a first draft. And that first draft can be as ugly as can be. It can be disjointed and terrible. The last third is where your editing comes into play. And that's where all the professionalism in marketing comes from. There is anybody can have a great idea in the shower or driving down the street in their car and pull over and write down a headline. And you'll see them write copy. And I see this all the time. And you're reading the copy and it's like, it starts off really strong and then just falls apart at the end. And there's typos and everything stinks. And you're like, okay, and I know exactly what happened, you know, because that person, you know, they didn't edit that 10 times. And the way it works is, and this is another tip, edit and complete passes. You know, start from the beginning and don't stop till the end. Because what people will do is they'll get on the computer, they'll start reading from the beginning, they'll find a mistake, they'll fix it, then they'll go back and start reading from the beginning again. And by the time they get to the bottom, the top's been looked at and revised 20 times and the bottom has been revised once, right? And the bottom is the close. Right. You have four types of readers. You have the reader that, you know, skims the headline, the bullets, the offer and the PS and decides to buy or not. You have the people who start reading from the beginning and continue reading until they are sure that this offer is not for them or they can move on without feeling they're missing something in their life. You have a third type that comes and then they, you know, they skim, but they find something of interest like a subhead or a bullet and they start reading from that point forward. Or the fourth kind, which skims it and then makes the decision on whether or not they need to read it. 
and then they go back and start reading from the top. But that means that, you know, the end is still very important. Yes, the headline is nothing. It's a chain link. Everything stops if that first link, the headline doesn't grab attention. So it is extremely critically important. But everybody really can do that. I think some people are better at it than others, but everybody is better at writing headlines than they are at writing closes right? <laughs> because they have more practice at it. They don't sit and, and come up with the big idea for the clothes in the shower or on their car. <laughs> so, you know, you're writing for those four types of people. And if you not editing all the way through and making sure that you're ending on a punch or in that in the middle, you're keeping them reading and stuff like that, you're going to do yourself a disservice. Back to the original point, the shortest part of this entire process is actually writing that first draft. So if you're sitting around staring at a blank screen and wondering what to say, you either don't know a hack for getting yourself writing or you're actually not ready to write because you don't, you know, you should be itching. Oh, I got to tell them this. I got to tell them this and I got to tell them that. And you just start pounding that out and not worrying about how smooth it is. And you smooth it all out during the editing process, which is actually wasn't really covered until I wrote about it. But if you know it, it's really a formula. You know, it's not a talent. It's something that you can do. And I've kind of proven that. And so the point of the the writing part being the real quick part, it's the knowing people. It's like, oh, I got a deal that's going to make them want my offer more than anybody else's. I've got a solution that, you know, man, I wish I would have had this when I started in the market. You know, and that's the offer I'm going to make. And, you know, here's what's going to make it really compelling. Or I'm going to do a double your money back guarantee because nobody else is offering this. And I know that I can structure it in a way that nobody can cash in on the double your money back guarantee. It's really about persuasion and compelling. It's not about the writing. You don't want anybody to turn around and go, wow, he writes really well. <laughs> you don't want them to say, you know, it's like going to meetings. You know, I talked to my dad about that. He's like, you know, you don't want to go into a meeting and have them say, you know, she's dressed well. You want them to not notice that. You don't want them to go, wow, he's, he showed up in jeans and a t-shirt with holes in it. But you also don't want them going, wow, look, you know, you want them paying attention to your words. You want them paying attention to your offer. And I think a lot of people think that copywriting is more about being a good writer. And it's so, again, back to the original point, persuasion is about if you can persuade well in person, you can persuade well in print. And my dad was experimenting with people and getting to know them, getting to know their hot buttons, getting to know everything about them in person all the time. And that's what translated into his writing. He did not write all the time. He didn't write as often as most people who want to become writers write. What he did was he experimented with people. So he would come up with ideas and hooks and he'd run them by people and say, hey, you know, I just figured out a way to do this and that. And he'd see if it piqued your interest. And then if it piqued your interest, that might end up making it into a headline. And, you know, he did a lot of time doing his research for products and services unless he knew the market really, really well already. And then he would experiment with people in person. He would pay attention. In fact, his most widely mailed sales letter in history he wrote, he went door to door and would pitch people and pay attention to their eyes and their facial expressions to see where he was losing them and what was exciting them in helping him craft that letter. So, you know, I tell people good copy comes from great conversation. So if you say something that, you know, all of a sudden everybody just laughs or everybody goes, oh, whoa, I can't believe you said that. And it grips them and they, now you've started a conversation. That's going to be good copy in print too. Yeah, I like that. 
you know, I did that one time. I had a friend. I said, if it wasn't for the Borna letters, people wouldn't understand what an education I had so early in life. They would never believe it. And I said, thank God my dad went to prison. And my friend just started laughing and laughing. So it became a subject line. <laughs> wow. So it seems like this might be hard to hear for some of our listeners who are introverted and the idea of going out there door to door and speaking to people like we just want to hide behind our laptop. Right. But it seems like part of what worked for Gary was getting out there and sitting with people and talking to people. And that was part of his process. That's what worked for him. What else did you do in your research process that maybe was less attached to speaking to people face to face? What else worked for you? Being a customer, you know, I'll give you an example. I didn't spend too much time with watch people. I collect watches, not really expensive ones. I only have a couple expensive ones, but I have like 70 watches from like the 60s and 50s and 80s and stuff. And I was collecting watches. And one thing that I hate is haggling. And so, but it's a jewelry business and the jewelry business, you haggle and they start off with really high prices and expect you to haggle down. So I developed these like strange techniques for getting a decent deal and do and research or finding a good deal. And it wasn't like I was spending a lot of time socially with people in the business or anything like that. So I don't want the introverts to think, oh, wait, that's not me. You got to talk to somebody. You have to talk to people the same way that you have to talk to a car dealer, when you go to buy a car, it doesn't mean that they're going to be your friend or you want to, you know, become chums. <laughs> so what I did was I, I had learned some tricks that I taught myself, which is I would print out, you know, a really great deal for the same exact watch I wanted from the internet and put it on a paper where it was cleared. So when I went to the watch seller, I'd put it down on the glass so and I knew their eyes would glance at it. And if I knew the watch was $500 and I was willing to pay 250 because you can get like 50% off of Japanese watches, I would put $250 cash in my wallet and all the other money would be in my pocket. And so I'd get him down and he would say, okay, you know, I'll go for $280. And I'll say, that's a great deal. I accept that. You know, that sounds good. And I'd open up my wallet and go, oh, I've only got 250. You know, he's looking and he knows he's not going to get more than 250. And it's time for him to say yes or no, right? (laughs) Yeah. So he'd say yes. And they did it all the time. Right. Because I knew that they made money. They got them cheap enough where they made plenty of money if they got it for 50 percent off for Japanese and 40 percent off for Swiss watches. I wished I had known that trick when I started. So all I have to do is, you know, write that up in a report and say, you know, little known trick, you know, exposes the secrets and it will allow you to buy any brand new Japanese watch for 50 percent off or, you know, or Swiss watch for 40 percent off. And then I can build a you know, a report that generates names and starts, you know, recommending vendors and selling things to people and stuff like that. So the point I'm making is if you are a problem solver, okay, and I'll give you a hack for that if you're not a problem solver. But if you are a problem solver, you can walk in the shoes of prospects. You can order online. You can do these things and find out what would have made the offer more compelling for you? What would have made you feel safer buying? What would have got your attention more? What is it when you go through it? See, because a lot of people don't get that. When you're with clients, you just sit there and you ask them why. And they expound on it. And then you say, why is this? And then, you know, it takes them forever to really get around and tell you something that's juicy. You know, you're with a client who's, you know, telling you about their college experience and all the same stuff you'd hear from anybody else in their business. And 40 hours later, they just drop and mention the fact, yeah, that was when I was lost at sea for a month. Why didn't you tell me that before? <laughs> now I can tie that into how time is precious to you. And if you're not a problem solver, 
it's really easy to solve problems. Get together with a group. A group of a group of people will sit there and solve problems. And this is a kind of a, a like a preview in one of the things I'm writing in my book right now, which is. What you do is you first tell people, okay, we're here to solve this problem. We want to know how can we provide, what is it you'd like to see that these people don't provide or that, you know, has been a failure or would make things better. And you let them all bat that idea around and improve it. You know, anybody's in a brainstorming session or what they now call masterminds. Well, you know, one person will have an idea and that will spark the other person for an idea how to improve the first idea. And it bounces back and forth and gets kind of honed. Then the second thing, and you wait to do this, the second one is you say, now, how could we provide that solution and do it cheaper? And they'll, they'll start working on that. If you start off and say, how can we provide a solution that's cheap? They will all sit there and go, I was going to say this, but I'm not going to say this now because that sounds too expensive. So you have them first work on the solution, then you have them work on, you know, how to get that solution inexpensively. And you will come up with something that's, you know, that's unique. And I was telling this to a, a dental student and he said, you know what, because I said, you know, a lot of the money seems to be in, in inventing these tools like the Gracie, which is a type of scraping tool. I don't even like to think about that. But he says, yeah, that's true. But I'm not, you know, that kind of a thinker. And I said, well, you just get together with a group. And he goes, you know what? The guy who's now 3D printing and patented the process for 3D printing dentures did exactly that. He got a group of dentists together and said, how can we do this and that? They all ping ponged it around. And then he took the idea, patented it, and is making a lot of money. So you can do group think. Well, if you, if you're not a problem solver and you walking in the shoes of your prospects, even if you don't really communicate with anybody else in the industry, even if you're doing it online or through mail order or space ads or whatever. My dad did most of his research. He would read four or five books on a subject that was new to him. And believe it or not, being an expert is relative. Back to the watch thing. And my friends all think I'm an expert on watches because I know the brands and I can change watches and I can fix bands. <laughs> to me, a watch expert is somebody who can you know, swap out faces and dials and modify a watch. An expert is somebody who can take apart the watch completely, oil it, lubricate, adjust it, and put it back together. To those guys, a watch expert is somebody who can manufacture parts to repair a watch. To those guys, an expert is somebody who can actually design and make their own actual movement and watch. And so there's always an expert. Expert is relative to other things. And most of the time, if you read four or five books, you are an expert. At something that people who don't know very much about it are, you know, you, you take three or four copywriting courses, you are an expert in copywriter compared to a, a business owner who doesn't know anything about copy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's all relative. And so when you're doing your research, you can do it in forms. That's another great place. You know, and if you're shy, you can just do it anonymously, but you can, you, it, it's a lot easier if you're an extrovert because I can go and ask a question in a form and I can ask a question. Like I get into an Uber and I like sociable people. And so some of my friends are like, you know, Hey, how you doing for the day? I get in there and I go, Oh, it's the best day, your favorite day to work. When do you get the most money? You know, and stuff like that. I ask them business questions, right? And they give me some answers and you're, you're surprised. So I'll, I'll ask you guys, do you know in Uber, do you know what's one of the most profitable days for them to drive? Oh, uh, I don't know. Take a guess. Take a guess. And I was wrong when I made my guess. Don't be afraid to make a wrong guess. I mean, I would have guessed a weekend, like a Saturday or. Friday night. Yeah, maybe a Friday night. Yeah. Friday night is what I would have guessed, right? Because, you know, even if you have a car, you want to go out drinking and be safe or whatever. It's actually Sunday. 
Hmm. And and I'm not saying this isn't, you know, I'd have to statistically prove it, but I was shocked to hear the Sunday was good. But when you heard about it, you're like, okay, that makes a lot of sense because A, people are going to pick up their cars that they've left on Saturday night. They have a routine and a route, you know, carpool to get to work and get about their work life that's figured out. Sunday is the day when they're like, you know, I'm going to go to the beach today, you know, and so the people without the cars go, you know, hop on it on Sunday. And, but Sunday is one of the better days. And when you know that, yeah, I'm not saying I'm going to, but if I was going to do a thing about how to make a little extra money and everything and say, you know, and the great thing is, you know, Sunday you get good money as an Uber driver and you don't have to fight traffic the way that you do during the week, you know, and you can think of a whole new thing. So it is easier if you are an extrovert, but as an introvert, you can still do research in forms. You can still read the books. You can still do the research in numbers and the industry and all the kinds of things and information that you would want to need that you don't have to. Now, for an extrovert like me, that's not nearly as fun as getting out and talking to people and finding out info that way. But for an introvert, you know, it's where they're going to shine. So yes, you can do lots and lots of good research and still be an introvert without talking to anybody. Yeah. Interesting. So Bon, I want to jump back to an idea. I kind of had an aha moment when you were talking about how the top of a sales page gets edited, you know, 20, 30 times and the bottom of the page gets edited once. And I was like, yeah, I hadn't really thought that through the way that maybe I should have in the past. So I'm curious, what is your process for nailing the close? Are there tactics or strategies, tricks, anything that you do to make sure that that close is just buttoned up and works every time? You know, are you spending that much time on the bottom of the page as opposed to the top of the page? Let's talk about that a little more. I spend the same amount on every element of the page as I do on every other element of the page because all the writing, the offer and everything else is done in my head. The only time I actually spend more time honing is usually the bullets, but I'm going to give you a hack so that anybody can do it for the closing and stuff like that? Yeah, let's do that. I like hacks. Okay. When it comes to closing, it's basically how much effort you have to put into the closing depends on the market awareness. Okay. So for anybody who doesn't know that, it's how, you know, there are people who don't know they have a problem. They don't know they have bad breath, right? And so you have to explain to them that, you know, hey, look, do people back off when you start talking to them? <laughs> and you have to make them aware, you know, they're not even aware they have a problem. Then they're the people who are aware of the problem, but they don't know what solutions there are. Okay, you can change your diet, you can take these pills, you can use mouthwash, you can brush your teeth more often and so forth. Then there are the people who are aware of the problem and they know of different options. They're not sure which is the best option. And you explain to them why Listerine's better than Scope. Okay. And then there is the people who they know all the problems that they have. And this is a very basic, you know, example, but this is true with all marketing. This isn't true, you know, and they know everything and they just need to be given a good price, but then they need to be told why they're getting a price that sounds too good to be true. The second factor is how unbelievable is the offer? You know, does it sound like, okay, that's ridiculous or is it not? So the example I like to use is, and this is actually, I'm writing this in a book right now, the same book I mentioned earlier. If, you know, I say, hey, I'm going to take you across town, you know, a 30 minute drive and it's only going to cost you $2. I have to explain that deal because that doesn't make any sense to you, right? How in the world could he do that? If I say I'm going to take you across town, it's only going to be $20 or 15 bucks. You're like, okay, you know. It's kind of like an Uber. I can do that. You're not really questioning it. So the more unbelievable the offer is, the more you have to explain. So one of the first things that you're doing during the planning and conceptualizing of your campaign is what's the offer and the explanation of why you're doing this offer, why you're putting this together and why you're, you know, why you're making it so good. 
And you have to explain it in a way that makes them go, okay, I believe that. So that's another part of the close. And then, so the harder it is, and the, I can't do all of this, but you know, the harder it is to believe, or the big, and the third thing is how much money are you representative of their income? How much money are you asking for them? So for example, if I go to a big developer who is always working on buying properties and building, tearing down homes and building 30 or 40 McMansions, and I say, I want to sell my house to him, he just needs to know the square footage, comps in the area, where it's located. That's all he needs to know. But if I go to somebody, she's looking to buy her first home, you know, how much information do they want? They want a binder full of information that they may not even read, but has got the answer to every question they or their friends or any of their advisors might actually have, right? Because it represents a, a greater amount of their income and their experience is less in the market. So the greater these hurdles are, the more you have to put into the close. Okay. The more you have to put in risk reversal, the more you have to put into explaining why you're making such a good offer. And the more you have to convince them that your offer is genuine. Okay. If the less that's true, you know, you don't have to do that that much. You know, so if you say, you know, I'm offering this for 90 bucks, it used to be a thousand bucks, but I'm doing it for 90 because it's easier for us to provide digitally and so forth. Everybody goes, nods their head and says, that's okay. And so the stronger it is, the harder it is to make that close. And if it gets really, really difficult, this is a hack that I had learned from my father, which is a fantastic one. You know, and the funny thing is I learned it, but I learned it in person before I ever learned it and how to write it and use it. And so when I would have conversations with people and some people, this is after my dad had passed away and they're like, man, you sound just like your dad. And it's, I'm always thinking, of course I do. You don't, you sound like your dad, you know? <laughs> Everybody does, but I realized it was in the way that I was arguing and the way that I was making my cases and stuff like that. But my dad taught me this close, which is a really killer one, which is called, what if I'm right? What if I'm wrong? There's some great psychology in this, in the way that you do it. So let's suppose I'm selling you something that's really expensive. It sounds too good to be true. It's an income op or something like that. And I say, hey, I get what you're feeling right now. And it sounds like this is too good to be true, but let's put it to you this way. What if I'm right? What if I'm wrong? What if I'm actually wrong and I'm full of beans? I actually don't care about my home, my wife and my children here in the life I've built over 20 years. I'm actually going to take your $2,000 and I'm going to run off to Costa Rica and I'm going to blow it on drugs and scuba diving trips. You know, you'll never see me again. Under that terrible worst case scenario, you'll probably have to go back to your credit card company and do a chargeback and wait 60 days to get your money back. But what if I'm right? What if what I provide to you is a new way of making money that gives you the freedom and the kind of money to really do what you want and follow your passion in life and the freedom to follow your passion as well? And it provides you all the XYZ benefits that you want, right? So that's a really strong close. And there's a lot of things you can add to that to say, you know, and in addition to that, I'm giving you refund time in case you have any doubts whatsoever that come up even after you order. And, and so forth. And so you can check it out, test it and make sure that everything is as legitimate as I say it is. And that's a very strong, powerful close to get people over the edge. This is also in the book that I'm writing for those four readers. Remember I was talking about all those readers. Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay. Well, the, what I like to do is to, you know, I want to make sure all of them read or the people who are skimming are kicked over the edge. And I'm not a big fan of templates, but I do make sure everything I do follows the formula of ADA. 
Okay. Attention, interest, desire, and action. If you watch the Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross movie, he got the D wrong. It's not decision. Attention, interest, desire, and action. And that's the formula. They can blend into each other, but they need to go kind of in that order. And so in the action part, you're always compelling them to act. And this is part of the closing as well. Closings, you have to give them, if people think that they can wait to make a decision, they will wait and then they will forget. Life will get in the way and they won't make the decision. So everybody's putting in a sense of urgency. And there's no reason to put in a false sense of urgency. You can create real senses of urgency. So, you know, you, what you can do is you can offer a bonus report that's good for a limited time and then just switch up and offer a different bonus right? And then later bring back the original bonus and say, hey, you know, this bonus was really popular. We offered it a year ago and it's been off the market. We haven't offered it for a year. So now we're bringing it back for a limited time, right? So everybody thinks that you got to do these like, you know, we have a reputation and everybody knows when we say we're going to do something, we do it. When we say we're going to pull something, we do it. You know, everybody says this link will be dead in, in six hours and the link's there for six months. But you don't have to do a false sense of urgency. You can create a real sense of urgency in getting people to do it. And you should. You really need to do that because in sales, delay is death. And that's a motto that you really need to stand by. It's one of the mistakes I see most marketers making these days because, again, they're working on, I got a great offer. I've got a great headline. I'm going to work with somebody who's fantastic. But it's that the one component I see missing all the time is not really doing a very good, compelling sense of urgency that's believable. But the top marketers, I do see them. And here's how you do it. Let's suppose that you have that sense of urgency. And I don't know what it is. Let's suppose you're throwing a meeting for copywriters in New York, right? And (laughs) Who would be crazy enough to do that? Well, I don't know. It's, it sounds, you know, and let's suppose you got some really great people there, like, you know, big Jason Henderson and, you know, some unknown, super fantastic guys like Sam Markowitz and things like that. <laughs> but if you, let's suppose you round up some experts like that and you're going to have them, right? <laughs> and you're writing your copy and you're down at the end and you're like, how do I end this thing? You know, my PS, you say, remember, you know, with these 100 experts have changed a lot of lives and can teach you and put you on the track. But or actually, I'm sorry, let me give you the formula first. You say, remember, then you do comma and you repeat the benefit and then the sense of urgency. So you say, remember, at our event, there's going to be 30 experts who have changed the lives of hundreds of entrepreneurs and help them get the lives that they've been after or building and write fantastic copy and turn businesses around. But if you're interested, there are only 10 seats left. There's your sense of urgency, right? Okay. Well, if you got that OCD reader who starts from the beginning and reads to the end, that kicks them over the edge, mm-hmm. right? That person who's skimming, that's a compelling part of it for the person who's making the decision based on the headline, the bullets, and the PS and the offer. For the person who's skimming it and trying to decide whether or not they need to read this, it tells them that, hey, this sounds interesting to me, but I better read it now because I have to make a decision. Mm-hmm. Do you get that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So so this is that's why that PS hack is good for all four readers. Yeah. So uh, I feel like I took off my interview hat. I'm just like, soaking this all up. <laughs> I want to be on your list when your book comes out so I can read your book. Are you mentoring right now or providing copy critiques? I'm just listening to all this and I struggle with my clothes. I know I'm struggling with it right now. Um, so selfishly, I'm asking for my own work. But uh, what do you offer right now? I do offer copy critiques. My brother and I both do it. The mentorship program that we're starting to put together is actually a pretty high-end certification program where what I'm going to do is 
teach everybody research, walk them through, you know, developing the unique hook offer and solution from the research, doing the first draft and how to get them going. And then whether they've got writer's block or not, and then putting in the editing process. But we do that on a one-on-one basis. And, you know, you just contact us at either bond or Kevin at the Gary com, And we do offer that. But for the most part, what I'm trying to do now is my main focus has been the books. And I know Rob wanted to ask me about that. What I did was, you remember how I explained how I divide the work into thirds research you know, first draft and developing the unique hook offer and solution and the editing. Well, I decided to sit down and write all of that. And the first one done was the editing book. And so that's already out there. And that one was really exciting for me. And the reason it was is because nobody's ever done that. David Ogilvie says, I'm not a great writer. I'm a great researcher and I'm a great editor, right? Everybody else will say, you know, edit, 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 edit. Has anybody ever told you how to edit? I'm I'm an awful editor. (laughs) Yeah. That doesn't happen. I When I did that, I was like, you know, holy smokes. Nobody's ever taught this. And everybody's saying, edit, edit, edit. And I was like, oh, you know, I mean, I said, you know, this is a first. It really motivated me to get it done quick so that, you know, because I get the feather in my cap of being the first person to ever write a book on editing copy. <laughs> you know, because everybody says there's nothing new in copy. I was like, well, here's something new. But here's the good thing about that editing book. And I'm not here to push that because I'm fine without the the sales from the book. But what I like about the book the most is some of it is stuff that I learned not directly from my father. I learned it from recognizing patterns in his work. And the one skill that I have that personality and aptitude tests say is pattern recognition. I'm good at recognizing patterns. So I would recognize the pattern I would see in the way that my dad would put things. And I would see that on other pieces of copy. And I was introed into what was effective copy and what didn't work. You know, I knew those things. You know, people will pass out swipes on my dad's. They don't know whether or not they worked or not. And they're like, oh, yeah, <laughs> you know, this is a great copy. I was like, yeah, that looked like great copy. It didn't really work that well. But in any case, so I started recognizing patterns. So there are actually lessons in there that are Gary Halbert lessons that nobody learned before, not even his protégés, because he never verbalized them. He was too busy focusing on other issues and stuff like that. Now, my dad's editing formula had five things to look for. I think it was five. It was break up your paragraphs, break up your sentences. It was look for the instances where you use the word that, that you don't need them. Mm -hmm. Called it the superfluous that hunt. (laughs) I'm like, why are you using a word like superfluous? (laughs) My dad had an incredible vocabulary. It's just nobody would know it reading or talking to him. And, you know, he, he would insert subheads and stuff like that. But what happened was I was like, okay, here's what I want to do. And I'm going to look out for this. And this is what I do. And this is what I do. Because my dad and I came up with two different worlds. He came up with the world where people type things out and they had just starting to invent the electric typewriter. And there was really not that much in the way of corrections. So my dad, would his process, he would do the research, he'd walk around, he'd get that aha idea. And he would always snap his fingers too and go, aha, got it. <laughs> and then he would write down the big idea. And then he would start perfecting the pitch in his head with an imaginary prospect. And then when he was ready, he would sit down and he would start writing and he would write from beginning to end. And it was as close to the finished product as I've ever seen any decent copywriter do. But that was because he grew up in those times. And then he would go through edits three or four times, but they were expensive to have done. And he did more editing, the more the easier it was for his assistant who started working with a word processor. 
I grew up with the computer. So I just pound out that first draft and I spend my time reading and editing and polishing it. And then it ends up sounding more like Gary Halbert stuff, right? It's sounding like a Halbert because again, you know, you have the same kind of tone, intonation, argument, persuasion techniques that you grew up with your parents, right? <laughs> I just happened to grow up with Gary Halbert, but it was the editing process that smoothed my stuff over. You know, and I knew I was there when John Carlton's like, you know, I was reading something that was with my commentary and he goes, I couldn't tell the difference between yours and your father's writing. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's a good pat on the back, right? But the point is the editing process was something that I turned around and put more time into it. So I would do things. I'll give you an example from the book itself that most people don't do. In copywriting, there's a famous thing that everybody calls the ITU formula, where they say that you should use you and your four to eight times more than you use the word I and me, because it's always about the prospect. So they say, you know, I want you to always use you and things. That's not what the great copywriters do. The great copywriters, and they do, some of them do it by accident, and they don't realize that this is the difference between their good and their bad ads. The great copywriters, they, for the most part, take on all the negative in the I form, and then they put all the positive in the U form. So what they do is they start off and they say, I was sleeping in my car, or I was just waiting and wondering how long I could keep the doors open before the money runs out. And mm -hmm. I couldn't sleep at night and I was sweating and, you know, so nervous and wondering if I was going to have to go back to work or if I was going to ruin my credit and what my family was going to think and so forth. And that's when I discovered the secret that will allow you to get so much business that you'll have to turn it away and you'll never have to worry about going back to work at a nine to five job ever again. And the reason you do that that way is because if I say, you know, I know how it is, you're struggling, you're sleeping in your car, that person might be like, I'm not sleeping in my car, <laughs> you know, but so if you take on all that negative and the, the way you want to do it in copywriting is my situation is worse than yours is right now, you know, and I'm going to show you how to end up into a spot that's better than the one you were even hoping to end up in. That's the real formula, right? You know, so that's why I was sleeping in my car. And sometimes it resonates with them. And other times it's like, wow, yours is even worse than my situation. And then I discovered the trick that, you know, you'll have to open up new locations. You'll be looking for investors to see if you can do it. And, you know, you're just going to have to admit that it's time to start sending business to your competitors because you just can't handle it all. They're like, oh, that's a situation I'd love to be in, you know? So it starts off with, I'm in a situation far worse than you'll ever be in, and you'll be in a situation better than you hope to dream. They take on all the negative in the eye, and when they switch to the positive, that's when it becomes you and your. So I don't do the, you know, formula of, you know, this is how many times I said I and me, and this is how many times you say you and your. And another well, I don't want to go on too long. You want another quick tip on that? Yeah, one quick tip. And then I have one last question before we wrap. Sure. Well, what you do is when you do the I, there's sometimes you have to do a brag. You have to say, I'm really good at this. Okay. So what you do right before that is you explain how human you are. So you say, look, you know, there's a lot of things about my life that are far from perfect. I don't even know how to set my watch. I have to get my kids to put the contacts in my phone. <laughs> but the one thing I am really good at is teaching people how to write copy because I learned from a guy who taught to the best of the best. And I heard the first lessons he gave to anybody and I heard them, I saw them refined over time and learned the most effective ways to convey those lessons and those principles to people who want to learn how to write copy. And so the one thing I am very good at is teaching people how to write copy. 
Okay. So the point is people go, you know, if you sit there and go, oh, I'm great. I'm good looking. I'm wealthy. I've got my stuff together. I haven't made a mistake in 10 years. People just hate you. <laughs> right. I mean, I hate people like that. You know, you do too. But if you hear it put into that words, because my dad would do this, I would hear him say, look, I can't do this and this and that, but I'm really good at this. And I recognize that pattern because you turn around and you go, wow, you know what? And if you teach me how to write copy, I know, I'll know how to write copy and I can program my phone so I'm better than you. <laughs> That's subconsciously what's going on in their head. So when you do the you and the your thing, remember that if you're going to have to talk about your accolades and how great you are. Don't forget to do it with that humility. Yeah, that's, oh my goodness. I'm just thinking of a sales page I'm working on right now. I'm like, I have to redo everything based off everything that you shared <laughs> in this conversation today. So I want to ask you one last question that I can't quite let go of. You mentioned okay. earlier in the conversation that your father had a rocky relationship with money. I'm curious, like, what is your relationship with money? Did you carry that and take that from him or have you evolved and changed your relationship with money? Oh, I'm completely different. My father and I, actually, a lot of people don't know this, but my dad made and took home the most money in his entire career working on a project that we both pioneered, invented, and ran together. And the reason he was able to do that is I was in charge of the money and could, wouldn't let him screw it up. <laughs> it was, it was, it was that, that's really the reason. I mean, it, he had lots of, lots of winners, but this was, you know, I was like, I recognized what he was doing, but my parents were complete opposites. My mom, you could, you know, work the same job as a surgical nurse for like 30 years. You could set your watch by when she was coming home. My dad was this radical wild card and I hated the ups and downs. And the one thing, and, and this is, impossible for most people to believe until you experience it. So I don't expect anybody to believe this. Money really doesn't buy happiness, but you don't know that until you have money and you're not happy. Okay. <laughs> and being, and but I'm not, you know, being broke sucks too. You know, <laughs> right. being broke will cause you unhappiness. And so growing up, my brothers and I were the wealthiest kids in school. And then, you know, never really the dirt poorest kids in school, but had no money and then wealthy again, and then had no money and wealthy again. I saw my dad who was going to prison and, you know, scrounging through the cushions and the couch, looking for change to put gas in the car to basically throwing away money and spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on boats and just totally useless stuff. And again, it took me a long time to realize that my dad, he really needed that feeling of needing to make it. So he would blow his money and then get into a position where he needed to then have a breakthrough because he didn't work that hard when he was making a ton of money. So one of the things I hated, and I think all kids do this with their parents, is they kind of rebel. It kind of like skips a generation. And I don't know if it's because men get a lot of their attitudes from their mothers who get it from their fathers. And so it's like skipping a generation or if it's just that you're rebelling because your parents were wild. So you're straight laced or your parents are straight laced. So you become wild or whatever. But my parents were both polar opposites. And so I kind of like went right in the between. And I've seen times when we had great times and terrible times when my parents had plenty of money. I've seen great times and terrible times when parents had very little money. <laughs> So what it is for me, I realized very, very early on in life that 
it's not he who dies with the most toys wins. It's not he who's, you know, take any measurement that everybody does. In my opinion, the person who wins the game of life is the person who from birth to death has spent the majority of that time happy, period. And that means that you have to prepare for the future you know, else you're going to have a terrible future. If you're scrambling to make rent at the end of the month, the end of the month is going to suck, right? You have to still prepare for the future, but you can't dwell in the past. You have to live in the now. And what makes you happy is how you spend your day. It really is. It's what you're doing on a day-to-day basis because that's really what your life is. And so I kind of reprioritized it. And one of the things I learned early was everybody, you know, who's older than me said, this is what it's going to be like, or this is what's important. I started paying, they, you know, as soon as I realized they were right once, I was like, I'm going to start paying attention to that advice. So when I had kids that like, take your time and enjoy it. And I did. I said, you know what, instead of going and traveling for work all the time and worrying about this and that, I'm going to make enough money to live comfortably, not work hard at all. I'm the biggest underachiever you'll ever meet. (laughs) And I'm proud of that, too. (laughs) And so I'm always at the home, you know, when my kids get home from school, I spend lots of time with them. I take them and explore and do all kinds of different things. And they were babysat outside my family, like outside of the grandmothers, like twice, you know, because everybody said, you know, enjoy them while they last. And I'm enjoying my children while they last. Now my son's hitting the teenage years. So I'm now starting to be willing to travel for business a little further. Before I had a rule, which was I'm never going more than an hour away from home by flight or by car for business. So people were like, you know, hey, you want to come to GKIC Summit or you want to do, I remember they invited me to Titans. (laughs) I was one of the few people they're like, hey, you know, you guys are legacy and everything, you know, so you know, we'll give you tickets and everything like that. And I'm like, I'm sorry. <laughs> you talk about getting on a plane to New York and then taking a train to Connecticut. <laughs> I was like, but, you know, that's because you're my family. But now that that's changing, I know that in this next phase of my life, that one of my main goals is to travel more, you know. And so back to your question about relationship with money. So what I do is I've always made more money than I need for what I do. But I don't turn around and say, that's it. My goal is to make a million or two million or three million or anything like that. My goal is to do the things that I really want to do, the things that I'm proud of, the things that I enjoy. So when I wrote that book on editing, and I'm I'm writing all three of the books, actually, I'm working on book number two right now. But when I wrote that, it wasn't because I needed the money. It wasn't because I needed the win. It was because I wanted to be the first person to write a book on editing. I wanted to provide something of value. It's more fun. It's interesting. So I spend my life doing the things I want to do right now. And this changes all the time for me. Right now, I'm doing a whole lot of hiking and mountain biking in the Santa Monica Mountains. And I'm spending a lot of time at the beach because we're having these incredible weather spells. And I'll actually go out there and sit and work and edit. You know, everybody in our business says you can work from anywhere in the world. But the truth is, if you've got a lot of clients or you're doing webinars and you're doing things like that, you got to be up during American working hours. Right. You know, so all my friends are like, I can work from anywhere. I'm in Malaysia. I'm like, yeah, what time are you getting up to do that webinar? 3 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> not, not worth it for sure. Yeah. Right. But I literally can work on the plane, <laughs> you know, because, you know, my brother and I, we create our own offers. We create our own, you know, products and services and we can do it via remote control. Or, you know, from remote locations and stuff like that. That's the great thing about 
direct marketing is you can do it that way. Now, copywriters who are guns for hire, that's you still have the problem of having to work during American hours. If you've got time and the resources and you're not always up against the gun, when you're setting up direct mail and ad campaigns and everything, you can work via email, send out your emails in the middle of the night and the people get back to you by the time you wake up (laughs) and stuff like that. It does offer a lot of freedom. And growing up, you know, I looked at my mom and my dad and I'm like, I could be a lot like them in good and bad ways. So I decided I wanted to be like my dad in the ways that I admired, my mom in the ways that I admired. And one of the things I really admired about my dad, everybody's dad was off going to work. My dad showed me, you know, no, I'd like to go to movies on a Tuesday afternoon, you know, and (laughs) I do too. And, you know, I live in Los Angeles and one of the worst things about living in Los Angeles is traffic. And I never get stuck in it because I just don't have to commute in during rush hour. Yeah. You know, I'll go out to the beach and sit down and pop up a chair and watch the dolphins swim up the coast. And I'll sit there and edit my book because I edit on paper, which by the way, everybody should do. Don't edit on the computer. Print out your stuff on paper and edit that way. And I do that and, you know, and I work and then I'll come home and I'll actually hand it to an assistant or my daughter (laughs) who I'm training to be an editor right now (laughs) and say, make these edits, you know, and then she'll do it. I'll print out a fresh copy and I'll go sit at the beach and do more. And if I get an idea, I just pull out my laptop and pound it out and, you know, add another section to it and stuff. You've convinced me. I'm ready to move to Southern California so I can sit on right. the beach. <laughs> Sign me up for all of it. I want all of it. <laughs> well, again, it's it's lifestyle thing for me, and that's just what I want. You know, I mean, and every time something changes, if I want something else, it's like I'm just like my dad. Oh, I want this. Okay, how much is it? Okay, and I'll go back to work and make more money and get what I want. Yeah, great approach. This has been a fantastic conversation. We have gone way over time, but I think there's been so much value here that hopefully our listeners will forgive us. I have a feeling they're going to appreciate what you've shared. Oh, they're going to be excited. <laughs> if, if people want to learn more about you, find your books, connect with you in person, where would the best place to go be? Okay, my website is bondhalbert.com. And of course, we own the GaryHalbertLetter.com. Don't forget the the. And I'm on Facebook as well. We do run a copy group as well, like you do. But I really like your copy group, by the way. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Most of the time you join a copy group and then you get so many notifications, you turn off the notifications. (laughs) I don't turn off the notifications for your group. Well, that's good. But anyway, you can also connect and reach up through me on Facebook, you know, as well. And we're readily available. People are usually stunned how quickly, and that's something we also picked up from our father. A lot of people didn't know it, but for a long time, the number on my father's newsletter was actually his home phone number. (laughs) Oh, wow. Yeah. They didn't realize, you know, everybody's like, well, you know, I'll never get through to him. And so he didn't have to worry about it being too much of a pain, but he was really always made very approachable. And so Kevin and I have always decided that we're going to be very approachable too. And so, you know, we are, and a lot of people, they're like, wow, I didn't think it would be so quick or so easy to get you to, you know, to give me a few minutes of your time. Now that doesn't mean I'm available. (laughs) Like I'm going to you know, give everybody calls an hour of my time. I couldn't afford to do that, but, but we're available. So, you know, you can hit us up, you know, and again, I gave my email just out earlier, which is bond at the Gary We have another site called halbertizing.com. And the way that originally was, 
is we didn't want anybody to think that we were going to step on our dad's legacy in any way. So whenever we created something that's just mine, I'll put it on bondhalbert.com or announce it there. If it's all solely 100% Gary Halbert related, it goes to the GaryHalbertLitter.com. And then when Kevin and I did stuff that was Halbert adjacent or, you know, that was marketing, it's about marketing, but it's Kevin and I and a little bit of stuff about our father because you really can't separate, you know, us from him. Yeah. We'd put it on Halbertizing. And, you know, so if we were doing breakdowns of his ads, we'd put it on Halbertizing instead. Okay. So yeah, three great resources. The Gary Halbert letter is one of the resources that we share with everybody saying, you know, all of the newsletters that are there are just a great free resource that you guys have provided. We'd mm-hmm. like to share that with our group, but hopefully, you know, people can connect with you. We would love to have you come back for another episode you know, just to talk about all the stuff we didn't even get to. <laughs> if you're open to that someday, Bond, you know, long before another 83 episodes have passed, hopefully, but we really appreciate your time and everything that you've shared. It's been fantastic. Sure. Yeah, this has been amazing. Thank you very much for having me. You've been listening to the Copywriter Club podcast with Kira Hug and Rob Marsh. Music for the show is a clip from Gravity by Whitest Boy Alive, available in iTunes. If you like what you've heard, you can help us spread the word by subscribing in iTunes and by leaving a review. For show notes, a full transcript, and links to our free Facebook community, visit thecopywriterclub.com. We'll see you next episode.